0: Shut up and sit down. Hello and welcome to Funny Business,
1: a podcast for free thinkers and creators. I'm Robbie Hicks. And I'm Lockie Bradford. Well, today's Monday, and that means we're getting to know the people behind the stories.
0: We talk to guests from all walks of life and unpack what makes them special.
1: We are naturally curious, Rob.
0: That is what makes us special. Anyway, we could talk about ourselves all day, but Monday's episodes are all about our guests. Let's find out who we're talking to today.
1: On today's pod, we've got a very special guest for you. Big bad Brock McLean, former AFL player, turned special projects officer at Enosis Therapeutics. Uh, We go deep on pretty much everything here. No holds barred. Brock's an open book. It's been a long time coming, having him on the pod. And I've got to say, it's been one of my favorites so far this year. So bring a notepad and pen. Enjoy.
0: Brock, thank you so much for joining us today on the Funny Business Podcast. For those at home listening, tell us
2: who are you and what do you do? uh g'day lads thanks for having me on it's about bloody time I've been waiting for the call up for about three years so um anyway my name's Brock McLean um you know I used to kick a footy around for a living uh but now I am the special projects officer for a psychedelic research company called Enosis Therapeutics.
1: Look we're going to get into all that good stuff but did you guys go to the same primary school and grow up around the same area like what's the go
2: yeah Essendon, Essendon North represent we were uh we were a school of the future so we were one of the uh, very early adopters of technology back at Essendon North Primary School so we were very very spot for choice but I think Robbie you're a couple of years uh, younger than me. Yeah I mate I was a
0: few I think I was still a few years behind but I remember having like that the
2: Apple laptop
0: school where uh, we had all the the colored Apple desktops which was like no other school yep. sort of had them and weird times we'd love to get into a bit more about like journey growing up and life obviously you mentioned, mentioned kicking a footy around for a living you had what 10 11 years 11 12 what was the
2: yeah 11 years in the afl system so six in a Melbourne and five a cup
0: yeah i mean
2: I, as far as far back as i can remember i had a footy tucked under my arm you know i think i slept with my footy um you now when i started going to Vic kick, um you know i started in prep you know that's how long ago it was Vic Kick back then It's Oz kick now um i started in prep um and i was uh too rough for the kids in my age group so i got put, put up to uh grade two and, and then I started playing locally I think at the age of six um, down at Avondale Heights. My dad was a senior coach there at the time and then moved to Aberfeldy and, and stayed there pretty much for the rest of my career but you know, footy was in our blood. Um, Pop played at Carlton, he played in two premierships there, 38 and 45 played about 114 games then was chairman of selectors for a number of years Ricky played at uh, Carlton for a number of years and then went across to Richmond I think he kicked 55 goals in his first year at Richmond and was part of the losing grand final team in 72 and then Dad was a pretty good footballer, but unfortunately, he just got injured along the way. I think he was retired by the time he was 21, I think. I think he had six shoulders and two knees um, by that time. So um, footy was just, you know, it came natural to me. Um, You know, dad very much sort of wanted me to be a footballer and I found that I had, you know, pretty much some natural ability. So that was always the dream, um, you know, growing up and, and everything that I did, you know, probably from the age of 12 or 13 was in an effort to be an AFL footballer.
1: So were you bringing Gatorades to house parties and stuff? Were you one of
2: those <laughs> early doors, just making sure it
1: was all good, mate? Got a big day tomorrow. You
2: know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to make sure I'd would uh, have my orthotics in my runners. If I was standing up all night, bring a few waters in or a few Gatorades. So it was, uh, you know, it was one of the many, you know, sacrifices that that you made. Um, and you know, lucky for me, I had some really um, good mates around me. You know, I never had, uh, you know, everyone anyone peer pressuring me or, or trying to get me to to drink because they knew I wanted to be a footballer and they were very supportive of me and my endeavours um, to do that. So that was, you know, I'm very thankful for them uh, for being as supportive as they, was, uh, as they were, sorry, um, you know, during those uh, high school party years.
0: I feel like the, the the year years that you were in the system, there was a, sort of a big change in the way that footy was, was played, the way that what was, I guess, what was expected of people at the elite level in that period from 2004 to 2014. It went from being like, Real hard, tough, in and under footy to then I somewhere where the you field. thrived, Rob. Yeah, zero. Time. Yeah, no, I was I, 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 definitely the same as Brock when I was in, in prep. They put me up because I was too rough with all the other kids. That was definitely something that I had as well. But what were some of the changes that you saw in that period of time? Because I, I, my, my short span from 2010, 2011, I feel like I was the next generation of people coming through that I guess had a different understanding of or expectation of what being in a system like that would be like. Whereas when I arrived, I was um, – Richmond had just come off a pretty shitty run and now at the bottom 15th or whatever on the ladder, that was pretty different times. I felt like it was still in a transition. I look at footy now and seeing, like, what people are allowed to do and a uh, freedom to be themselves and just – it's more than just a job, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, when I – sort of so I got drafted uh, end of – was it? November 2003 and, um, you know, footy was – professional then but it wasn't quite at the professional standard it is now and that's duty you know sort of the money um involved now but in terms of the style of game you know it was still very much you know a one-on-one game a lot more uh you know physical a lot more one-on-one contest there were very few rotations like I think back then there was you know maybe 30 or 40 a game so it was very much an endurance um based game so you know that really suited me to the ground I never was blessed with leg speed um you know that was right from a from a young age and it was just you know the way that I was I was built I was okay off the mark but um so but because I was such a good runner and very endurance uh such a good endurance athlete you know footy suited me um to the ground but then I think it was probably around 2009 or 10 um when I think that the rotations really started to to increase, And it went from an endurance-based game to a more of a repeat effort type of game. And I think, you know, the instigator of that or the person who really drove that was Mick Moldhouse. Um, I think I heard him talk about this. He went over to the States and he was watching a lot of ice hockey games and he was just seeing how many times they rotated on and on and on and off the ice, on and off the ice. So he got this idea of, wow, we can really turn this into a much more repeat um, effort game. And they were really the first drivers of it. And I think that's when, you know, a player like Dane Swan really came into being the player who he was because he was never blessed with, you know, a huge amount of endurance, but he had that ability to be able to, you know, those short, sharp, repeated bursts, you know, go hard for four minutes, come off for two, go hard for four. Um, and it was probably about that time when, you know, uh I think the the PA were, were negotiating, um, you know, the uh the the rights, you know, the TV rights, the deal. So they were negotiating for a, a bigger slice or a bigger percentage of the overall money and the, the, you know, the amount of money that was being offered by, you know, channel seven or whoever the entertainment companies were at the time was just increasing, increasing. So the demands of the players um, went up and then you factor in social media coming involved and, you know, the rise of Facebook and Instagram. And I think now Snapchat and and TikTok and, um, you know, the 24 seven news cycle, the amount of people covering the game, the amount of TV shows covering the game, like there's a, there's a show about footy on the TV every night, or you know, on the on the radio every day. Whereas you know, back when I was a kid, or coming through, there was the footy show on Thursday night. There was um, maybe talking footy on a Monday night, but that started at like ten o'clock, so no one really watched that. Um, and then maybe the Sunday footy show on the, on the Sunday morning, and that was it. So all they really did was there was enough content there to talk about footy. But now because of there's there's so many TV shows, they all have to try and stand out. Um, You know, they've all got clickbait journalism because, you know, the way that the the revenue model is you're relying on eyeballs to see your content. So footy changed a hell of a lot, you know, in the, the, I guess, short period of time I was there, 10 or 11 years. uh, But the game changed itself, the environment changed itself and the amount of pressure um, and the amount of, um, I guess, eyeballs on players, you know, increased tenfold and, you know, these days, I sit back and watch. I was like, I'd hate to be an AFL player today. Absolutely hate it. You just cannot escape um, anything. And I mean, some of them they bring themselves into that into that uh, into that spotlight by I don't know, you know, the, the, the necessity or the need to like showcase everything that they do on social media. It's a, it's a bit of a head scratcher um, to me. But yeah, the scrutiny on players these days and the expectations of them off field. It's almost like they're expected to live to a different set of laws or rules than the rest of society because they're, you know, role models.
1: And you can't you can't make any mistakes, you know what I mean? You get picked apart for every little thing that you do. But do you find, like, when that happens and, and you are open and vulnerable, I've heard your chats before, do you find that you get more connection from people around it when you're really open and honest and you become like that lighthouse?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you've got you to think right. These kids are 18, they're 19. Like anyone who's not in the spotlight or in an AFL environment or an elite athlete environment, think back to when you were 18, how many mistakes you made, what you got up to, and then all of a sudden because, you know, some poor young kid makes a a slight error of judgment in a split second and you're going to come down on him and judge him harshly because of that. You know, I understand that he's in the spotlight and that he's a role model, but God, he's a human being first and foremost. You know, no one's perfect. Um, So I think there needs to be a little bit of leeway and a bit more understanding and and empathy in that regard. But in terms of, you know, being, I think just being open um, and honest about, you know, the mistakes that you made. And I think, um, you know, I think Bailey Thomas was a really good, you know, example of that. He came out, he owned up to his mistake. He didn't try and, you know, shy away from it. Yeah, he had some, you know, some pretty uh, extreme personal circumstances um, going on at the time. And and, and me having a, a lived experience of mental health, I can certainly understand that. Um, from that perspective. But I think, yeah, the, the best way to do that is just, you know, own your mistake, um, be honest about it and, you know, get on the front foot early, take the questions early and, and get it out of the way early rather than leave it sort of linger and, and build up over time.
0: What do you think of the clickbait media stuff? I, I feel like we've really tried to adopt, you can see it more coming in over, especially over the last few years is like the Stephen A. Smith ESPN first take of American sports. Um, now, snuffies like me and lock can have a uh, our own podcast and get to talk to people like yourself where we're providing an alternative viewer an alternative platform outside of the big ones but now like you mentioned before it is just a, a game of who can get the most eyes who can get people locked in on that content has it gone too far yeah look i look
2: i i you know i, I sometimes i fall into the trap of like what's this guy saying? And you click on it you're like, hey, what are you doing? You know this is clickbait media, but you fall into that trap of, of wanting to read it so you can, you can ridicule it or say, you know, what is this guy thinking? But again, it's all about, you know, sort of the dollars, right? It's all about the eyeballs because that's the way that, you know, a lot of our media is online these days. We don't see the traditional print media like, you know, sort of the, the Herald Sun and the Age and those types of papers. From the old days, you've got so many sort of online, Uh, content providers now that they need to try and stand out and and the way to to do that is by you know saying you know ridiculous things that might not make uh, much sense or might be absolutely ludicrous in terms of common sense or actually being realistic but at the end of the day they're just there doing a job they're there to make money they're there to make their employer money so um, it's nothing new like I think in you know if you look back to before online media was such a big Um, presence, you know, Kevin Bartley used to say some pretty ludicrous things on his radio show on SEM and that was designed to get people calling in so you would have more people listening more people engaging in his show and therefore better for the people who were advertising on his radio show which was the selling point for SEM so it's nothing new but we're just seeing more and more of it because one, you know, online uh, media is such a a more prominent thing And, and two, there's so much jostling for position and attention and eyeballs that you know, um, media people or, or journalists need to stand out from the from the pack.
0: I would love to go into the public scrutiny angle. Locke's cousin, um, Rock Smith, plays the Western Bulldogs, had him on the pod yep. a few times, and uh, he seems to be the, he's had a lot of uh, keyboard warriors say things over his career, but if you look at what he's done, he's had seven one-year deals, made a grand final, played extremely well in the grand final, but he's had to cop, considering he's pretty, um Mentally resilient, sort sort of dude. Do. He does well not to care about some of the stuff that people have said. But we'd love to get into what your thoughts are on. Yes, that they are role models. But you mentioned being human, coming into a, an environment where all of a sudden you know people are talking about how you perform in your job, whether or not you deserve another contract and should be fired did from you, your job. It's did weird. Did you look at big
1: footy, Rob and and no, Rob, I had like all deep, the bro.
2: forums
0: and shit.
1: Uh,
2: now, if I, if I if actually if I wanted to if wanted to wanted to laugh, I wanted to feel good about myself. Yeah, I used to to click on it from time to time, just to read what was being said. Because you know, I, I you know, I, I was lucky. I never really cared um, about what what people thought of me, and, and that was something that was instilled to me at a very young age. But you know, I understand like this notion or everyone's attitude in saying, you know, there shouldn't be any. You know, we don't want any keyboard warriors. We don't have, want any trolls on social media we want this safe space for everyone that's that's on there but in reality we're never ever going to get rid of trolls you're never going to get rid of keyboard warriors so that's something that every person who signs up to social media whether you're a um, you know whether you're an athlete or a, a singer or or someone famous you have to be prepared to cop you know the negative feedback and and the keyboard warriors and the trolls and that that I'm not justifying that I'm not saying that's right but that's the realistic um, situation. And, uh, you know, I was on uh, social media during my playing days, mainly sort of Twitter and um, Instagram. I did have a Facebook account, but I never really checked it. But yeah, some of the stuff that used to get said, said to me on Twitter was, you know, it was pretty brutal. And particularly in those, those first couple of years at Carlton when my first year was injury plagued. And then my second year, I just couldn't break in to the senior team. Calum supporters are some of the most brutal supporters um, out there. And I'm sure there are a lot of other supporters out there. You know, I had people sort of telling me to kill myself over a bad performance one time and, you know, a few other things. But, you know, lucky for me, uh, I could laugh that off um, at the time. You know, the, the social, uh, the keyboard worries were never my issue. I, I was my own um, worst issue. But, you know, I think if you, if you put yourself... On public platforms, if you put yourself on social media, if you are in the limelight, then you know you have to be prepared for some of that criticism or for some of those trolls. Because I mean, there is an alternative. If you don't like it that much, you can just quit what you're doing and and sort of go, you know, sailing to the sunset. We have had you know players who've done that. Tom Boyd's a perfect example. He just you know his mental health is more important to him than money and fame. Um, and football. So at the end of the day, we all have choices. Um, and if you choose to put yourself on social media, then you have to be prepared to, um, you know, weather or accept that there are going to be um, keyboard warriors who who target you and say some pretty nasty things about you.
1: You used to like Twitter back in the day, didn't you? You used to like. don't it.
2: worry, I, I gave as good as I got. It got me in trouble um, a lot of the time, I ended up getting fined um, a little bit uh, at, at one stage for saying something back to you know someone who had a go at me, but you know I, I I found that sort of fun. But you know I've I've been off social media for the best part of seven or eight years now, Um and it's probably the best thing I ever did. Just, just LinkedIn, you know,
1: surely. You're all LinkedIn,
2: yeah, link, LinkedIn for LinkedIn for business, Um and I have a Facebook account with no friends just so I can post stuff for our for our work account on Facebook. But yeah, I don't I don't miss. You know any of it, especially in, in this day and age, with everything going on with COVID and, and all these types of conspiracy theories. Just like God, I'm so happy I'm spending my time doing much more productive things.
1: <laughs> what about what about transitioning out from footy? Did what, did what did you have a plan while you were playing footy that you that you were working towards something else, or did it all of a sudden
2: just stop? I, so 2011, um, I was in the second year of a three-year contract. And, and as I just touched on, my first year of Carlton went as, as bad as it could be. I, I think I played four or five games and then was injured pretty much for the rest of the year. And then 2011, I just couldn't break into the senior time, even though my form was like amazing in the VFL. I was getting best on ground every week, but I just couldn't break in. So I was like, I started looking ahead to next year. I was like, shit, I've got one year to go on my contract. This could all be over by the end of the next year. So it was a really good thing for me because it forced me to start thinking about life after footy. So I had, I didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do, but I had, you know, some, some interests, um, that, that I wanted to learn more about. And one of that was the share market, um, and and learning how to invest and learning what sort of the investment, um, ecosystem looked like. So, um, at the end of 2012, we, uh, we went on a preseason training camp to Arizona and, and, and one of the, um, you know, the big supporters, one of the wealthy supporters who paid a bit of money to come along. I introduced myself to him. His name is Tim Lincoln. Um, he runs a, uh, a sort of a research a research platform uh, and a couple of funds um, under the brand uh, Lincoln Stock Doctor. Struck up a friendship with him. Uh, I caught up with him after that. I said, mate, I want to learn more about the, about the market. He said, mate, go, go and do your RG146, which is basically your accreditation to give advice, and then you can come and work with me, um, you know, on your day off, one day a week. Um, so I did that. Uh, got my RG one four six. Um, I went and worked with with Tim either one or half a day a week, and I I, um, I balanced that with uh, um, an internship with at PwC uh, as well, which was an opportunity that came up through the AFLPA. So I I was pretty good and pretty you know had one eye on the end of of my career, um, you know, so that my transition into I guess the real world wouldn't be quite as um, you know, as bumpy as, say, you know, a lot of people who came before me. But the issue that I didn't realise, you know, throughout my football career is I just had this huge problem with with a lack of self-worth. And and while I was playing footy, I had self-worth because it was attached to what I was doing, you know. And being an AFL footballer, there was no higher sort of uh, pinnacle you could reach, you know. That was the the highest echelon you could get to. But then when I transitioned um, out of football and without football, I felt completely worthless as a person. And that was where my real um, struggles and issues and challenges where it wasn't because I was, wasn't prepared from a career perspective. It wasn't, I wasn't prepared or, um, you know, certainly from a mental health uh, perspective, or I wasn't in touch with, you know, how I was traveling um, from a personal perspective.
0: Is that one of those things? Like you come straight out of school, you go straight into the AFL system. It's pretty prescriptive of like, where you need to be what you need to do you got a pretty good solid base of routine you've given some freedoms but like then that's sort of gone and you're now the owner of your own destiny you're in charge of whatever you want to do you got all the freedoms in the world to do anything is that did that play a factor or is it more around like the attachment part to who am i why am i important still
2: yeah, it's, it's probably more so, you know, that whole sort of identity issue and, you know, it's it's quite a common uh, thematic amongst professional athletes when they leave their chosen sports. It's like, well, without sport or without my chosen profession, who am I? What am I? And, and, and we're not the only ones. Like, I've spoken to many of people, um, you know, sort of if I want to use the term the real world, you know, for one example of a, a police officer who retired after 40 years of being in the police force and he was like, who am I? What am I now um, if I'm not? A police officer. So, elite athletes aren't the only ones to sort of experience that, but it's 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 genuine. It's genuinely a pretty big issue for elite athletes when they leave the game because they've been so dedicated and so committed, um, you know, to their to their chosen profession that you know um, that's been their whole lives and it's been you know every single waking second, um, you know, is dedicated to being you know the best at their craft or the, the best of who they can be in their chosen sport. And then when you leave, it's like what do i do now i'm 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 back to sort of square one and you know what am i going to do i have no idea what my what my passions are because you know football was such a consuming um sport and it was you know it was there in your face and such a big part it, it basically ruled your life like you would go home after training and you you, you know you, you wouldn't go out you know with your mates to the pub for a few beers or you wouldn't go out for dinner the night before a game because it was all in preparation of being um a footballer so without having that there anymore without having that structure you know i completely sort of fell apart um and it wasn't long you know a few years after i left the game that i hit proper rock bottom
0: uh, i'm definitely hearing what you're saying i feel like hello we've had so many other people who have sort of transitioned from sports and you're right it's the same sort of theme that pops back up and my 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 experience with this was like i left i get listed maybe like couple of days before I turned 20. So my whole life was like going to be a sports person doesn't know what sport footy was the thing ended up getting that opportunity got a few games didn't really get much of a chance in the second year and all of a sudden I'm out the system and for me that was like I didn't realize how big an impact that had until I went pretty bad into depression I was on antidepressants anti-anxiety struggled with the whole identity and self-worth because by the time I'm 2021 20, I'm trying to think of do I now go and pursue and try and move my life I'm I was pretty immature at the time. Do I go move to Perth? Do I go play footy somewhere else to try and get back in? I'm five foot, nothing. I need to get a job. Like all those things where I feel like they're huge decisions that I'm trying to now have to make with myself. Cause it was like a decision forced upon me and mm-hmm. I struggled. I reckon for the best part of, I reckon I really started getting on top of my mental health. It took me nearly the best part of a decade of, of dealing with stuff, understanding I had a pretty bad knee injury back in 2015, which meant like I hadn't played any sports since. So for me, like even playing locally or traveling around, like I still had that because I was playing semi-professionally, or the yeah. I, the concept of I could go back and try again was still there. Whereas when that all sort of disappeared, I was left with a fuck. What do I do? I'm a I'm an office worker who sits in front of a computer. I'm just a just a cog in a system. What the fuck is my life? That was sort of mm-hmm. where I, I was at.
2: Yeah, and I mean, and that was my attitude or sort of my experience. I mean, now I wasn't ready for my career to be over. And I think, you know, it's very rare that you find someone who goes out on their own terms and, you know, how they, you I was sort of led on to believe that, you know, I had another contract, you know, waiting for me, you know, when I got back from my overseas trip. So my expectation was that I was a required player the following year. And that decision sort of changed, you know, in the, in the blink of an eye. So all of a sudden I've gone from, you know, being a wanted player to feeling like not wanted and, and, and being realistic and, you know, I was 28. I had a lack, I had no leg speed, um, the game had sort of really changed, and you know, as I touched on before, so I, I felt like I wasn't, you know, going to be picked up um, by someone else. And then, you know, starting at the very bottom rung of the corporate world, you know, I associated myself as, you know, as a bottom feeder. Uh, you know, or my self worth with. With that, I'm at the very low level of the corporate ladder and I treated myself accordingly because I felt like I was, you know, completely worthless because of my position in the company. Um, And it's taken me, you know, you said it took you a decade. I mean, I guess from I can go back and when I started experiencing, you know, mental health issues was sort of back in 06, 07. um, And it wasn't until sort of 2019 or 20 that I really got on top of um, my problem. So, yeah, it was a really, really long journey to get there.
0: Locke mentioned just before this to me um, off-air, do you remember your stats in your final game and how many Brownlow votes you polled?
2: Two Brownlow votes. Yeah, got two. So um, they say you're only as good as your last game. So if I played 22 games, that means I'd get 62 Brownlow votes the following year. But I think I might have had 30 and kicked the goal. It was against Essendon. um, And we had. I think we played a draw and I think Juddy got the three votes uh, maybe. So there's there's no sort of... uh, there's no shame in in playing sort of runner runner up to, uh, to one of the greatest midfielders of all time.
1: No, we've actually had Juddie on the podcast. He's a funny man. Yeah. He's an interesting yeah. unit, but he, he's uh, <laughs> Chris Judd invests, huh?
2: Hundred yeah. percent. He's all over it. But you mentioned
1: <laughs> you mentioned two years after you, you hit rock bottom, and then what, was it still going through that process of figuring out what you wanted to do, what you wanted to be?
2: Um, no, it was. So by the time I'd sort of left footy, I developed these really unhealthy. Um, coping mechanisms or or coping strategies. And and that probably started back in probably 2007. Um, That was when I started to get injured quite a bit. I mean, I had a pretty serious, uh, broke my foot round one, 2007, had a really serious ankle injury um, the following year. And that's when I started to notice that without football, um, even though I was a contracted player, but without playing footy, I still felt like, you know, who am I? I don't want to be this professional rehab person. or And I really struggled um, with those feelings of inadequacy, lack of identity, you know, without football there to sort of to, to give myself worth a boost. Um, and I started, you know, at first I started drinking to try and escape those feelings. You know, I had a real problem with facing up those really challenging emotions and my my, uh, first initial reaction was to, to run from them um, and to hide from them and to, to try and self-medicate. So it started with alcohol and alcohol worked for a little bit, but that started not to work and drug use, um, you know, and that started, you know, very infrequently. And then by the time, you know, three, four, five years' time, it became like quite a habitual pattern for me to abuse drugs, to abuse alcohol, to try and escape those feelings. So when I when I left football um, for the first 18 months, I didn't work. I, you know, I said, you know what, I'm just going to have no structure in my life. I just want a bit of freedom back in my life because I've been so, um, such a, a big on routine because of the professional sporting environment. And it was the worst thing I could have, could have done. You know, I, I, lived, I lived two blocks from Chapel Street. So there was a 24-hour bottle shop, literally a 10-minute walk up the road. Revolver was a 15-minute walk down the road. And 161 was a, was a 10-minute walk down the road. So those three places became like a bit of a Bermuda Triangle. Um, for me and and my sort of place became like a real you know the the, the party place and you know, people sort of rolling through my door throughout most of the week. This wasn't just confined to the weekends. You know, it was Monday, Tuesday, sort of Wednesday, and um, so that went on for some time. And you know, by the time I started seeing a therapist, that I just had all of these really bad um, patterns of behaviour so ingrained. Into my coping mechanisms, that it just took me so long for them to to work through and 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 unlearn and then relearn new sort of healthy um, coping strategies and, and mechanisms. So it was a it was a really sort of drawn out process. But um, you know, like anything, it, it takes time to undo learned behaviours and it takes time to learn sort of new ones. And, and you know, and I'm, I'm still seeing my therapist um, to this day, and you know, that's been probably five or six years.
0: I would love to get into drugs in sport. I feel like it's something that. You mentioned before elite athletes get held to a different standard. I feel like growing up now and just like even just seeing general population about how ingrained it is where it's like people talk about it, but I guess they're not really like the reality is that like being around sporting clubs, being around friendship circles, to go out and do things like drugs are a really, really big part of social events. They're part of, it's just, it's there in society, but people pretend like it doesn't exist. What are your thoughts going on now with uh, with people in the sporting arena in in those uh, professional environments with with drugs attached to stuff?
2: Yeah, I mean, like anything, players are going to be exposed. Like, again, they're humans first and foremost, right? They form part of the population. So whatever the drug use statistics are, you know, for the rest of the population, they're going to be applicable um, to elite athletes um, as well. So, I mean, I understand, um, again, the notion of, you know, of being um, a role model. Um, and, and wanting players to, to set an example um, in that regard. But I think we're really sticking our head in the sand or we're kidding ourselves if we think I, any professional athlete isn't going to be immune to those, you know, those drug pressures or into, into taking drugs as well. And you know, I understand because of the illegal status that's attached um, to illicit drugs. But if I look at um, a legal drug that's available to anyone over 18, alcohol is by far the most dangerous drug uh, known um, uh, to society. And, I mean, if you look at the statistics, it kills kills more people than any of the other drugs. That's, you know, let's at cocaine, heroin, tobacco, all of those things. Um, and, and I know from my personal experience, the most stupid and fucked up shit the most times I ever got into trouble was when purely I was just drinking um, alcohol. So, for me, alcohol's the bigger issue um, than illicit drugs. But, as I said, I can understand people's focus on a list of drugs, because of the, the illegal um, status and the illegal nature, you know of cocaine, ice, heroin, um, MDMA, uh, all those types of things. But I think uh, alcohol is by far and large the biggest, the biggest uh, psychoactive drug that's plaguing our society.
1: And it's, it's a bit dangerous too, because the way people talk about it so whimsically, like it's just ingrained in us, like even from growing up, like I, I still enjoy a beer, like you just fetch it for your for your dad, for your granddad, like, I don't know, it's just part of who you kind of are, and, and like and like you like you said, mentioned before, like the coping mechanisms, when you turn into that, when things aren't going too well, and it does feel good for a little bit, but eventually it's just, it's not, it's not good for you.
2: Yeah, so if I think about my experiences as a kid and growing up, you know, so Our our observations and experiences um, lead us to our uh, assumptions, so how we assume uh, the world operates. And from our assumptions, we draw out our conclusions, and then from there, we form our beliefs. So growing up, I look at my experiences growing up as a kid. My my dad's side of the family, big drinkers, massive drinkers, drank to excess. Every time we went to a family barbecue, every time we had a birthday, a celebration, something going on, those, my uncles, and pretty much most of the people on that side of the family, they drank to excess. That was my understanding of how we drank, you know, we drank it was never a quiet beer, it was it was, you know, and, and part of the problem was I was a very all or nothing person um, as well so I think, you know, we have to factor that into as well when, you, when you're talking about kids coming up and, and what they learn and what they experience and you know, looking at an AFL player and saying oh, you know what, you're a role model, you've got to be setting an example for these young kids but those young kids aren't learning what AFL, but they're seeing what they see on the TV and they're seeing them train. What they're learning is the stuff that they see at home and then the environments that they're around constantly that are um, you know, are created by the people in charge and those are their parents. So if they're exposed to such a, a, a drinking culture at home, whether that's at the pub, in the household, at other people's places, then chances are that's really going to form their attitudes towards alcohol as they go further along Um you know, further in, into life. And, you know, alcohol is so um, intertwined into the fabric of society, right? And you, you look at people's attitude. You go to a pub and you stand around with a group of people and if you say, no, I'm not drinking, you watch the reactions of most people within that group. It's like, what's wrong with you? You know, why, why aren't you having a drink? Or, you know, why, don't you like to have fun or something like that? And it's like, well, no, it's the complete opposite. I choose not to drink because I can have fun. You know, with alcohol, you're using a psychoactive substance to, to help you have fun in the process. But because of our, you know, our relationship with alcohol and it's so intertwined into, into society and it's, it's seen as, um, you know, the, the essence of, of having fun, then um, it's no wonder we have such a big problem um, with alcohol as a society.
0: Okay, probably a good segue into our, our sponsor of the show, Heaps Normal, non-alcoholic beer. The question we ask all our guests is, what's your version of Heaps Normal? What's the thing that you turn to when you're looking to get some energy back in your life?
2: Well, oh, energy. I mean, um, music's a big thing uh, for me. So, when we, you know, just, uh, you know, growing up, you know, I was always uh, exposed to, to a wide variety um, of music and, and really good music um, of that. And, and any time I'm feeling a bit flat or, you know, feel like I need a bit of a pick-me-up, music's usually the number one thing. Put the, put the AirPods in, go for a bit of walk. And I think there's actually a lot of research out there that I think it's either seven seconds or 30 seconds into listening to music that you like. It actually changes the state of your brain and, and affects your brain waves and, and those types of things. So music's, yeah, probably, you know, outside of my, my daughter, probably music.
1: What are you listening to? A bit of Armin van Halden, you know. Oh,
2: mate! I listen to everything. So probably the the, the number one thing that gets that's flogged um, the most uh, mm. is is Queen, Freddie Mercury. I'm an absolute you know Freddie Mercury nut, right? I've I've got three three of his costumes. Uh, a couple of them are custom made. I've got the the shoes that he wore to Live Aid, custom made. Um, a, a spandex sort of onesie custom made, yeah. I got them, I got them made for a festival, and I've got the live aid, Um, you know, the, the kit as well. So every time we have a few people over for dinner, you know, if we if we do have a couple of drinks that night, then you know, the concert will go on, and I'll sneak off and, and I'll put the outfit on, and I'll come in, and I'll do the routine. So Freddie Mercury and Coyne are usually at the top of the list, but you know, anything from, from Otis Redding to Al Green to um, you know, Frank Sinatra to Armand Van Halden to. Um, you know, sort of uh, Grant Smiley, DJ John Course. You know, I, I like all and any, any type of music that sounds good is appealing to me.
1: We actually had uh, Grant Smiley on the pod, and he was talking about uh, taking charge of the crowd and the dance floor, and it just made me so fucking amped up. He's just,
2: <laughs> <laughs> mate. I so those those early years um, of being being at the D. So I think it was o four o five. Um, Prince or or One Love back then on a Saturday night was the go-to place in the city if you wanted good tunes and it was usually either Corsi or or Grant Smiley or a couple of the other big Melbourne DJs playing there and the joint was absolutely rocking so and I think Corsi actually does some um, you know uh, does gigs now where he plays sort of music back from that from that area. So I think my, my wife and I were going to do, we got married uh, recently, but we we're going to do a bigger wedding in a few years' time when the girls are, are old enough. And we're genuinely, seriously looking at um, hiring Corsi um, for our wedding just to play like a lot of those throwback songs and, and have a bit of a disco type atmosphere.
1: Oh, I love that. How, how do you remember growing up and seeing like the over 28 nights and going, fuck, look at all them oldies out there. <laughs> on. You know, it creeps up on you slowly, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, mate, it's just, yeah, you go from, uh, I mean, uh, I think COVID probably really aged me like 20 or 30 years, but, you know, you go from from being, you know, someone who you consider quite young and hip and then all of a sudden you fall off the cliff um, pretty quickly. And, you know, now having kids, I mean, Steph and I got the chance to go out for dinner just the two of us a few weeks ago. We were out for dinner at 10 to 5 and we were home by 10 to 6. Like we're getting to the, we're, we're seriously in the area of, early bird special type of stuff, you know, going down to the the Kensington or Flemington RSL or something like that on a Tuesday night at 4.30 for $12.95 fish and chips or something like that. Like those are the types of areas we're operating in at the moment. It's a very different (laughs) life
0: to an open door policy in the back of Chapel Street, Monday through
2: Friday. It's a total opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Um, Hey, let's get into
0: what you're doing now. An an OC. Therapeutics. Uh, we talked about before off air bringing the tech into. How I don't want to butcher it, so let's. let's yeah, yeah, so you just
2: did. <laughs> yeah, So we're um, so it's a small um, Melbourne-based startup. Anosis Therapeutics. It was founded by uh, Agnieszka Sukula um, and Dr. Prasanth uh, Um and it was formed um, to explore or research the synergistic application of virtual reality and psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So um, for anyone out there who doesn't know much about the psychedelic movement, there's been a real renaissance and rejuvenation um, in the research, I think probably since 2006, that was built on back in the 50s and 60s before the war on drugs um, came into effect. So um, there's a lot of research going into drug development and creating new chemical entities um, to help with the treatment of depression, anxiety, um, pain, pain management, OCD, cluster headaches, um, phantom limb pain, you name it, central nervous system disorders as well. So our from the, the angle that we're coming from is we're looking to introduce um, specific uh, bespoke virtual reality scenarios um, at specific points of the psychedelic therapy process to improve treatment outcomes um, and to help capture uh, a lot of those embodied um, emotional um, experiential and psychological aspects that psychedelic therapy uh, give uh, open people up to so um, it's quite it's a little bit um, complex it's quite novel um, in what we're doing but um, it's certainly exciting and and psychedelics is something that I've had a big interest in for probably the best part of three and a half um, four years just because of my own mental health um, experience and um, and how psychedelics tend to get to the core of people's um, issues rather than if I you know, compare them to antidepressants or antipsychotics um, or anti-anxiety medications. They help dull down, dull down systems, but they don't actually help get to the cause of your issues.
1: Well, I love, I love psychedelics in, in terms of the first... I think for me it was an important environment to, to have them in um, and yeah. have that good experience and stuff, but it's really like introverted drug, isn't it? It makes you really think about and face issues that you've probably trying to been avoiding for, for a long time, maybe even a lifetime. And it brings that up to the to the sort of front, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, it depends on what sort of molecule you're looking at. So for something like MDMA, which is being, uh, which is in phase three clinical trials for the treatment of PTSD um, at the moment, and then if they keep getting the numbers that they're doing and the data that they're getting, that could be FDA approved by the end of next year. So if you look at how that... Um, the mechanism of action in the brain and how it works. So it turns down activity in the amygdala, which is the part of the brain which controls, you know, a, a lot of your emotions, your fear responses, you know, your, your anxiety, um, these types of things. So it turns down activity in the amygdala and then it increases the activity between the amygdala um, and the hippocampus is where we store all our, all our memories. So for people who who have PTSD, a lot of them are, are, are suffering because they're trying to suppress um, a lot of these really uncomfortable experiences they might have had in their lives, so you know, so sexual assault uh, survivors, rape survivors, um, army veterans. Um, so when they're when they're under the influence of the drug, they can relive um, a lot of those uh, those memories um, that are causing them issues, but they can do so without the emotions attached to them. So they can they can relive these these memories in a safe and supporting environment, and actually help. Helps them make sense of them and then they can store them safely in their memory bank so they won't actually cause them a lot of their issues, um, you know, sort of moving forward. So, the the data from the phase, uh, the first phase three trial was that um, uh, 67% of participants no longer have PTSD two months after MDMA assisted therapy treatment. So, we're talking about cure based treatments, not stuff that just, you know, helps, as I said before, address. Uh, symptoms, or you know, helps make you feel a little bit, a uh, little less sad, but helps uh, doesn't make you feel any more happier. Um, so that's why these these potential um, you know treatments for mental health are so exciting to me because we're talking about cure based treatments.
0: That's been my experience when I go to the go to the doctors. I had experience in in that sense is they're very quick to just dish you a bunch of stuff that you don't a bunch of different pills. that Very easily get access to things like Valium, and like I know there's been. Um, like the new docker that's come out about what's it called drug sick or dope sick what's the yeah yeah. probably dope
2: sick yeah
0: and i i feel like that's the thing now like the i look around and go people i don't know if that's the right treatment for people you mentioned it's not a cure-based thing it's just like hey just deal be numb for a little while just get over your shit and here have some pills and just deal with it is that
2: yeah. Your- so if, if, if you really want to learn about, you know, what a lot of those drugs actually do to our brains, read a book. Um, it's called Anatomy of, uh, Anatomy of an Epidemic. It's written by Robert Whitaker. He's a famous American investigative journalist, um, and he goes into to detail about how things like SSRIs, um, you know, so antidepressants, antipsychotics, benzodiazepines, which is like Valium, how they actually affect and make our brains um, abnormal because of of what they're actually doing um, in our brains. And in a lot of cases, they're actually causing more issues for people and they cause a lot of um, dependency issues um, and they can create um, more symptoms of different types of mental health treatments. And, you know, I think back in the the seventies and eighties, a lot of the big pharma companies who owned the IP on these drugs were, were spitting these, I guess, these, these lies of, of what they were actually doing. And it was a way of creating, um, uh, more consumers for the big pharma industry because they'd start on one drug and by by the time they'd go through the whole process, they'd end up being on seven or eight drugs um, on a daily basis. Um, so have a read of that book. But yeah, as you said, Robbie, I think, you know, Learning from my experience, when I actually started getting to the core of my issues, you know, I think initially it was like, oh, yeah, I'll stop drinking as much. I'll, pract- I'll do some mindfulness. I'll exercise a bit more, and, you know, that'll help in my mental health. But, you know, after time, I just found myself back at, back at square one. But when I actually addressed the core of my issues, and that was around my self-worth and how I treated myself and how I viewed myself, once I got on top of that, that was when the healing really started. Um, to begin. So, you know, treating treating symptoms is never actually, you know, going to work. If we applied that same sort of thought process, you know, in terms of a, a physical ailment, say you had a, a brain tumour, right? And the doctor's like, you know what? We're not going to cut the tumour out. Here's, here's some Panadol for your headaches. Here's a face washer that you can run under a cold tap to help with the hot flushes. And here's some protein powder to help with, you know, with your weight loss. You know, that's the same sort of, um, you know, angle that we're, we're coming at mental health treatment on when we use SSRIs and, and these types of things because they're not actually helping us get to the core of the issues. So that's why I find psychedelics extremely exciting. It comes with a the caveat they're not going to be for everyone. They're not a panacea. They're not going to fix everyone. But what they will do is they'll add another tr- uh, an option of treatment Um uh treatment options for people who might not you know who ssris might not work for or who the, the current standard treatment model might not work for so we're actually allowing people to access more treatment options that might be more, much more suitable for them in the long run
0: we had a dude on recently cam rosen we talked about a deep dive on medicinal cannabis could you talk about maybe some of the differences or like What's the difference between some of these treatments versus uh, maybe that uh, medicinal cannabis that's also sort of started, starting to pop off and, and getting more access to some of that those sort of treatments
2: for people look I think I, I, I don't know a hell of a lot about medicinal cannabis but I think that the difference is psychedelic research really started back in the 1940s um, when when Albert Hoffman first synthesized LSD and Sandoz who who he worked for started distributing LSD to a lot of psychotherapists, psychiatrists, psychologists who are interested in working with the drug um, as a means of understanding and what type of an effect it would have on their mind. So, you know, I think in the 1950s and 1960s, there were a 1,000 uh, published scientific papers on, on LSD, um, whereas I think medicinal cannabis, the, 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 the breadth and the depth of research isn't quite um, where psychedelics are. I mean, it is, it is a psychoactive uh, drug, um, CBD and, and, and THC, as far as I can understand. Um, but they've been used to in, to investigate sort of, uh, I guess, different things. So I think, you know, CBDs, um, there are some uh, prescribed treatment options for, for epilepsy. It's been, uh, you know, I have CBD oil, which I take from time to time in the morning to, to help with, uh, with joint pain. Um, and I take a, 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 a THC and CBD um, medication to help with my sleep um, at times as well. So I think psychedelics are more for, you know, the, the, the treatment options are, are broadening um, more and more. But I think initially they were looking at, um, you know, sort of mental health issues and, and those types of difficult to treat psychological issues where I think medicinal CBD is is looking at more, um, you know, things like epilepsy, um, you know, pain from, from cancer, um, these types of things. But again, I'm, I'm not fully informed on medicinal cannabis. So a lot of that is just based on things I've heard and, and read.
1: There's a new um I think there's a new series on Netflix How to Change Your Mind. I haven't delved into it yet, but uh, that's something definitely that I'm I'm interested in in watching and because it's it's hitting the mainstream clearly now. It's the number one fucking thing that pops up on the app, you know.
2: Yeah, so uh, so the guy who 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 initially wrote the book Michael Pollan How to Change Your Mind. He wrote that back in 2018. It was a New York Times um, bestseller. So he's behind um, this series as well. And it was his book that really piqued my interest. Um, in Alex, And after I read that, I went down the rabbit hole. So I watched the first episode um, last night um, on LSD. There's four episodes, LSD, psilocybin, which is your active ingredient in magic mushrooms, um, MDMA and, and mescaline, which is the, active, uh, the psychoactive ingredient in uh, uh, peyote and, and San Pedro, which is used in a, a lot of um, Native American um, church ceremonies. So it's it's it's. It, I mean, if 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 you're interested in psychedelics, I'd, I highly recommend um, having a having a look at the show or, or reading the book, um, because it's yeah it's a it's a it's a great insight into the you know the, the breadth of research that started back in the 50s, and I guess where the um you know a lot of the com- breaking down a lot of the common misconceptions um, about psychedelics as well.
0: When do you reckon it's going to become like mainstream? I feel like it's one of those things where, like, I remember reading about like microdosing and things like that as early as like. Remember when we were living together, Rob? I was having—I yeah. was microdosing
1: every day, self-diagnosing, self-medicating, or whatever it was. <laughs> but I, I felt enough where it wasn't like I wasn't buzzing every day, but it made me like more, a little bit more introspective. I was looking at things and thinking about things a lot more clearer and being a lot more self-aware.
2: Yeah, so it's—it's it's, it's probably one of the big um, debates or the big talking points within the psychedelic community at the moment is the debate around microdosing because you know there's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there and a lot of user reports of you know they. Um, you know, they, they claim or they swear that, you know, that it's helped them. And, you know, I, I don't um, disbelieve them um, at all. But I think now that they're, they're really trying to understand, you know, from a scientific perspective, whether actually microdosing works or not, or whether it's actually placebo. Um, and there's there are a number of advanced, um, uh, there's one trial that just finished, a phase one trial finished. There's another one uh, that's being done here in Australia by the guy by the name of Vince Polito. Um, so we're really trying to get to the to the bottom of I guess that debate. But in terms of where the where the movement can head, as I said before, I think if uh, if the numbers keep going the way that they're going, MDMA for PTSD possibly approved as early as end of next year. Psilocybin for treatment resistant depression and major depressive disorder could be by the end of 2024. Um, and then I think with a lot of these um, trials that are currently um, in the works, you could probably see from from late twenties um, onwards if if everything goes to to plan.
0: So you're so telling me that Locks Locks little story there doesn't count as scientific evidence. <laughs> if it's a placebo,
1: <laughs> does that still count as working? I still give that the green tick because <laughs> I mean,
2: plus if 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 it is the placebo effect, then who cares? You're actually getting the, yeah. the desired outcome. It doesn't matter if it's you know via the micro or via the placebo, as long as you're getting the, the desired outcome, then good if it's a placebo effect it just goes to show the power of the mind you know what it can do we're actually thinking we're thinking we're we're receiving some type of medicine
1: i honestly think about like for me instead of going to the gym for me i want to stretch my mind so for me it was like you know how some people like to push themselves and, and discipline themselves like that but for me it was always like thinking about things differently and in that context of like i just want to see how far things can go
2: yeah, and, and that's one of the beauties of psychedelics. I mean, you, you, they're being researched for a lot of these mental health applications, but in terms of expanding consciousness and, and what it actually can do for our, for our brains and, and how we understand the world and how we see ourselves um, in the world and how it actually allows us to think in completely different ways and how it allows our brain to connect on a much deeper level, Um, and how we can build uh, new neuronal pathways and connections, how it can help with neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, all these things which are so good for the brain and so good for the mind, and it can help break these rigid patterns of behaviour and thinking and um, thought processes. There there are so many, like, it's not just a a really powerful tool for, for the investigation of treating mental health. It's a really powerful tool for expanding our consciousness and, and looking at the earth and looking at ourselves in a completely different um environment it's just it's a shame because of the status um, of these drugs because they're non-addictive when they're taken in the right context and in the right setting you know they talk about set and setting they're extremely useful tools for for exploring our own consciousness and the depths of our psyche to other
1: oh, control I tell what, people when you can't, you know what I mean. When you don't allow what, it, is it yeah,
0: Sam, yeah. Sam Harris? Is it Sam Harris who, who does? I like his voice, and he talks about that sort of stuff. And you like get slipped away into talk about consciousness to me, you know?
2: Yeah, but Graham I mean, Hancock. Yeah, yeah, Graham Hancock. I think what what's the book you wrote? I've got it here somewhere actually. It's um, I haven't read it yet. Uh, Fingerprints of the Gods is is his book, and and Sam Harris. He's got the Waking Up app, and you know I used to do a lot of guided meditation. To him as well but there are so many like amazing people out there um to listen to it's just you know finding the time you know to listen to as many podcasts as you can or read as many books as you can and you know as you know Robbie once, once you get once you have kids a lot of the stuff that you like to do for yourself just goes completely out the door
0: a lot a lot less time mate a lot less time well thank you so <laughs> much for jumping on letting us pick your brain uh your story is pretty incredible and I feel like some people are going to take some uh, amazing insights out of this chat so thanks so much
2: cheers boys thanks for having me and
0: uh, all the best
2: This has been a Wellbeing Network podcast.